Thank you, Pastor Eric. Uh, what a joy to look out and see all these faces. I, I've actually taught here many, many years ago when you could almost play racquetball here on a Sunday morning. So uh, this is an amazing blessing. Well, let me start by telling you a story. Uh, when I was in seminary, I was a member of Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur is pastor. And uh, after one particular Sunday morning service, I was walking outside, and I greeted someone who was at the front door, a very disheveled man, obviously had lived a troubled life. And as I spoke with this man, he gave me his name, and he said, I, I want to share something with you. He said, at the height of my backsliding, I was a street person, and God showed me something very important. The more you live for pleasure, the less you'll be able to love God. And I have to confess, that statement stuck with me more than John MacArthur's sermon. The more you live for pleasure, the less you'll be able to love God. So I'm only sharing this because that man, that street person ministering to me, broke a stereotype for me. Because having been immersed in seminary, I thought, well, the people who are going to minister to me are guys with PhDs and THMs and veteran pastors and certainly not a street person. And so one of our goals this morning especially as you look at the title. I didn't look at a bulletin. Is the title of the sermon in there? What does it say? Intentional body life, fellowship focused on fulfilling the Great Commission. May I suggest that that sermon title is intended to break a stereotype for you. Now, I think the Lord is doing amazing things here at Berean, but God wants you to excel still further, and that's going to require breaking stereotypes that have been in place for a long, long time. And so may I suggest one of the ways to prepare yourself to listen to the sermon today is to say, Lord, I'm willing to let them go. Let those stereotypes go. Let the word of God wash over me and restructure and realign my thinking to scripture. That'll require breaking stereotypes. So part of the passage that uh, Pastor Eric read for us today, he gave some as apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The Apostle Paul likes descriptive words more than punctuation. His sentences are very long. And so there's so much theology in this verse, it's just incredible. You could almost summarize it by saying this that your sanctification is ultimately a group effort. You're not going to see your sanctification progress if you only read your Bible under an oak tree in the hills out here. It requires an interface with your brothers and sisters. Your progress in the faith has a corporate dynamic. And this is really what this passage is all about. You speaking into the lives of others and them speaking into your life, re-speaking the Word of God, has a transformative power to it. And so we could almost say that, that what we're seeing set forth here in Ephesians is Christ's pattern, blueprint, design for his church, the design for his church reaching maturity. So the redeemed, you and me, are to be built up in the true knowledge of Christ, and true knowledge, that's the strengthened word of know in the Greek, the strong one, which means a true knowledge not only by cognitive knowledge, but by experiencing this is who Jesus is. I have found him faithful. 
not only in his providential care of my life, but one of the ways I've found him faithful is the way my brothers and sisters minister to me. Isn't that interesting? One of the, one of the parts of growing in the knowledge of Christ is the body edifying itself. So you exercising your spiritual gift and you being on the receiving end of someone else's spiritual gift is one of the ways we learn who Jesus is. Did I, did I break any stereotypes? <laughs> I hope so. Because sometimes we think of, a, of, of the way we grow in the knowledge of Christ is our private devotions, and that's a huge dimension. Now, a gentleman that came with me from San Diego, Randy Williams, he shared with me as we're walking uh, around the camp at the retreat yesterday, he said, hey, I just want you to know that in my personal growth in Scripture, 10% has come from hearing sermons, 30% has come from my personal study, 60% has come from being discipled. Now, that, that distribution might not be true for everybody, but what a testimony that was. People speaking the Word of God into Randy's life in a very applicable, custom-designed way, almost like counseling, is what produced the greatest change in his life. And so the church grows, according to this passage here, by Christ's action through the members toward one another. The church grows by Christ's action, but it's through the activity of each member that it's growing toward maturity. And so I want to read to you the parallel companion passage uh, about each member, each joint, each, each ligament, so providing a part of that growth as Christ works through it. The companion passage is in Colossians 2.19. Colossians 2.19, the Apostle Paul is saying that these uh, teachers that are being led astray are basically denying the preeminence, the majesty, and the lordship of Christ. But that has a practical part of their disobedience. They're not holding fast to Christ the head as source person for everything in the Christian life. They're not holding fast to him as source of power, love, strength, maturity, and so on. So this is what Paul says in verse 19 of Colossians 2. And not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. Is Christ holding the body together? Yes. Are the ligaments holding the body together? Yes. Both are involved. This has got to break some of our stereotypes. Your growth is not simply by quietistically, passively reckoning your justification and leaning back on Jesus. Your growth is going to come by courageously and lovingly speaking God's truth into the lives of your brothers and sisters. Prayerfully addressing the needs of your brothers and sisters by Scripture. Now, the more that affects your mindset the more you'll be able to say to your brother or sister when they're ministering to you, thank you for letting Jesus love me through you. Thank you for being the conduit of Christ's love to me. Because that's really what's going on here. Christ is manifesting his virtues, his character, his personality through the members of the body. And so what does Christ refer to you as here through Paul? He refers to you as a ligament, a joint, a tendon. And each of these things have to be working in order for the body to function properly and to move toward maturity. Each joint, every joint. Notice it doesn't just say the body's held together by these joints. It says that the joints are supplying what the body needs. That breaks our stereotype. What the body needs is Christ working through the joints. So what is supplied is from you. 
We don't tend to think of that way because we've had 100 plus years of evangelicalism in which the church has been clergified. There's such a big divide between clergy and laity, we can't even think in terms of a fully ministering laity. And yet the doctrine of the church set forth in Ephesians 4 is a fully ministering laity. No passengers, no spectators, no observers. Everybody's, everybody's unleashed to ministry. And so as each member or joint in the body exercises his or her gift for ministry, there is a chain reaction produced by Christ working through the servants. The whole body is built up. Love becomes the atmosphere. And in the process, in the process of mutual encouragement and edification, <laughs> love becomes the very air that is breathed. And Christ imparts his risen life through the congregation. That's the corporate experience of Jesus. So we can't grow up into, the, uh, into this uh, mature man into the full stature that is Christ, without that happening. This means our Christian fellowship does not merely exist for your social needs and hunger for Christian friendship. Christian fellowship exists, communion of the saints exists for the building up of the body and equipping the body to fulfill, get this, the Great Commission. It full, it's the, the body's working and, and, and edifying of itself exists to fulfill the Great Commission, to make us like Jesus. Now, this whole phrase, every joint supplies, conveys a much-needed truth about the function of the body. Christ not only holds the body together through these joints, he makes it function, but he makes it function by what each joint supplies. That's the Spirit of Christ working through our gifts. So there's a ministry flow that's very normative. A very normative ministry flow takes place. But it does require that we adopt Christ's pattern for the church. Now, traditionally, churches have abandoned New Testament, the New Testament function of making disciples and adopted religious forms. A religious form means they go through the motion of singing, public prayer, Ministry of the Word, giving, shake hands, go home. It's basically going through those motions. Church becomes an event rather than the body edifying itself. I used to live in New England, and uh, countless beautiful white steepled buildings back there have become coffee shops, art galleries, and thrift stores. Why? Because they stopped edifying themselves and obeying the Great Commission, and therefore the church became irrelevant. It was tragic. You know, this whole idea of your fellowship, the local church assembly being likened to a body is masterful. This is the infinite wisdom of the Holy Spirit, likening the local church to a human body in which all these parts of the body are working together for vitality, for life. And so way before we understood the science of neurology, way before we understood the central nervous system, way before we understood the function of the body, the Holy Spirit in the marvel of His infallible Word set forth this analogy. Now, I was a zoology major, a pre-med major, before I was an art major, before I was a Bible major. <laughs> and when I was studying zoology, uh, we were taught that uh, one of the reasons you twitch before you fall asleep is your body's running a quick test 
to see if your autonomic nervous system is going to kick in. Because when you're unconscious, you can't make yourself breathe. You can't make your heart beat. You can't make your kidneys function, your heart, your liver, whatever. That's all got to be taken, up on, that's got to be taken care of by autopilot. That's called the autonomic nervous system. How interesting that the scripture is basically likening the head, the central nervous system, to Christ sending the message to the body. He's sending a message to you through his word, exercise your gift, build up the body, speak into the lives of your brothers and sisters. You're getting a message from Christ through the word of God. Now, what happens when a part of your body doesn't obey the brain? We call it a tremor, a spasm. Epilepsy, paralysis, it really disables the body when part of your body doesn't obey the brain, right? It's great. It's very disabling. This analogy, you can just milk it for all it's worth. The Holy Spirit chose this body analogy for a great reason. A healthy, vital body has its members obeying the message of its head. That's really what's in view here. And so let's kind of summarize where Paul is breaking our stereotypes. We tend to think about Excellent, solid, expository preaching and how much the Bible, how much the Bible uh, commends that and why it's so needed for a growing church. What we don't tend to think about is the pathway of Scripture from member to member. We think about the pathway of Scripture from pastor to parishioner, but not from member to member. And so what has to happen for you to actually be comfortable encouraging and exhorting and admonishing your brother or sister? You've got to form close relationships. You've got to form close relationships. In fact, close relationships are essential for genuine ministry. They're essential for growth. Even though I was the speaker at the retreat this weekend, I I took away a number of things I learned from the men of Berean. And some of these came in the way of quotes. (laughs) Let me read one of these quotes. (laughs) Here it is. If you're not close enough to share a hurt or be hurt, you're not close enough to help. Wow, that'll preach. (laughs) If you're not close enough to share a hurt or be hurt, you're not close enough to help. I'm not going to mention who said that, but uh, that's a wonderful takeaway. If this is how the men of Berean are thinking, you guys are in good shape. So forming close relationships goes against our natural nature of self-protection, of risk aversion. And so we've got to understand how the gospel equips us for these close relationships. Christ's righteousness imputed to you. Christ sacrificing himself and being broken and bleeding for the worst things about you. So that he could wrap around you the robe of his imputed righteousness. That's the foundation of close relationships. You're not going to have close relationships simply because you have the same mentality as AA. Hi, I'm Jay. I'm a sinner. Who are you? No, it's got to be based on something much more than just the determination to form a close social network. It's based upon the gospel. And so Christ imputed righteousness, the wonderful gift of forgiveness, being indwelt by the Spirit. That's the basis for forming these close relationships. So uh, here's a wonderful way to summarize it. I, I really like what this commentator said. No genuine progress in the growth of the body takes place unless each member is in union with other members. 
And as an obedient response to Christ, that means each part of the body is doing exactly what it's designed to do. In summary, in order to experience growth unto a a mature man, the body must hold fast to its head, Christ, and the body must be committed to the pattern of mutual ministry set forth by Christ. Now, this just overwhelmed me about nine years ago. I actually started a nonprofit corporation called Gospel for Life a little over 10 years ago, and it started out as a church renewal ministry which involved teaching on evangelism and apologetics, things like that. But I soon became aware that the real need in church renewal was the recovery of the Great Commission, the recovery of disciple-making. And so I thought, well, how can I say this in, in words that people will understand? And so I wrote a book called Christ Pattern for His Church, Disciples Making Disciples. Is that really Christ's blueprint for His church? That the church is to be the place where disciples are being made. One of the writers that I draw from in writing this book said it this way, so central must be disciple making in the church that your church meetings ought to be a theater of disciple making. Rather than a program administered by elders, your church ought to be a virtual theater of disciple making. Someone could walk in and say, wow, you're making disciples. This is incredible. My wife and I visited a church in Santa Clarita. It was just a packed-out church. It was in kind of a strip mall and uh, kind of a hipster worship service, a lot of torn jeans and tattoos and so on. And as I was uh, visiting this church, this greeter, particularly just an incredible personality, he wanted to talk to me a lot before the service and after the service. And so finally I said to him at the end of the service, well, brother, it sounds like this is an amazing church. Who's your Timothy? I'm not kidding. The guy just was crestfallen. It's like a crest on a bird falling down. He said, well, it's been a tough year. I've had some problems and some sicknesses, and there was some financial challenge. He's basically telling me why he never really stepped into the whole process of disciple-making. I don't, I don't fault the gentleman. He probably did have a difficult year. But is that a fitting question? Introduce me to your Timothy. I want to know your Timothy. Who's your Timothy? Who are you investing in? I want to know. That's a legitimate question. So the whole success of the church consolidating itself and working toward maturity depends upon the interrelatedness of the parts, the interrelatedness of the parts of the body. This is such a glorious truth. And uh, my mentor, John MacArthur, brings out the Greek on verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at that verse one more time, Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 16, speaking of Christ the head animating the body, it says in Ephesians 4, 16, from whom, that is from Christ, the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so this growth being caused is in the middle form in the original language. That means the body under Christ's direction produces its own development. Isn't that interesting? The body under the direction of Christ is producing its own development. 
It's resonant dynamics. Resident dynamics, not through outside forces. The vital power within the church causes the growth of the church to build itself up in love. It's Christ's power working through each individual member, and that is a resident dynamic. That's breaking a stereotype, brothers and sisters, that the body is producing its own growth and producing what it needs as each member is obedient to Christ and carrying out the use of their gift. How fascinating is that? So as each joint supplies through Jesus what the body needs, it causes the growth of the body. That's a resident dynamic. It's building itself up in love. Now, this is a mindset that requires some adjustment. We've got to lay aside some of our years of calcified tradition and basically say this is Jesus' blueprint. This is his pattern. If this is Christ's blueprint, this must inform the way we do church. It must inform the way we do church. Randy's comment, the brother I brought with me from San Diego, after a day and a half with the men of Berean, said, I am blown away. This is profound. These men want the blueprint. They want Christ's blueprint. I was really struck by that. So I just want you to say the testimony of the men here are already impacting the brother I brought up from San Diego. So this blueprint is connected to the fact that as we step into Christ's blueprint, we're going to be fulfilling the Great Commission. We're going to be making disciples capable of making disciples. For that is Christ's Great Commission, isn't it? See, traditionally, the Great Commission was thought of as sending money and missionaries to far, far away places. And that's certainly part of the Great Commission. But the part of the Great Commission we totally forgot. We've got to make disciples in our neighborhoods, our homes, and our church. We've got to make disciples right where we live. That's the part of the Great Commission we forgot. Now, at Masters University, where I teach, about once a quarter, I'll see a table out in front of the cafeteria. And there'll be some young, fresh-faced kids, 18, 19, 20, and it says, uh, sign up to pray for and give to our Czechoslovakia short-term missions trip or some other country. And I'm just thinking, you know, bless their hearts, you know, a lot happens in a short-term mission. You get, you get stretched, you find out how the other part of the world lives, but in some ways, it's a Christian vacation. And so, I don't fault these guys. A lot is learned, and some people do become missionaries after taking short-term missions trips, but... I'm often tempted to say, be careful, young students, about missionary fairy dust. Missionary fairy dust means as soon as you get off the plane and you step onto Czechoslovakian soil, this dust comes down now. You're ready to do ministry. This is real ministry. That wasn't real ministry in San Diego. It wasn't ministry in Santa Clarita. This is real ministry because now you're on foreign soil. We've got to be careful of missionary fairy dust because the missionary call is right now, right here, so that the body life, the body life fellowship and communion at Berean is designed to fulfill the Great Commission because you're making disciples who are capable of making disciples. And so how do we begin thinking this way? It might involve a very long-extended vision-casting 
by pastors Eric and Oliver and the elders here, casting a vision for this continually. The vision for this has a very short shelf life. You won't eat it for breakfast every day. You've got to hear about it constantly before things change. And so you're going to hear this drum, this drum being beaten over and over again. And it's necessary. You see, one of, the, one of the main ways the Great Commission is short-circuited, and I have to be careful as I say this because I'm also a pastor in San Diego, but well-meaning church members and church leaders, without intending to do so, send the message that the best way you can serve Jesus is help us perpetuate this organization called our church. And I would ask every one of us this morning, is that the Great Commission? It's not. You can serve, you can love, you can serve, but if you're not seeking to invest in your brothers and sisters to help bring them to maturity and make a disciple capable of making a disciple, that's not the Great Commission. It's just not. And I'm grateful for all the people who do serve in churches. Everything from getting a clipboard sign-up sheet going to setting up chairs, whatever, janitorial work, you name it. That's true service. But the Great Commission is inseparable from making disciples who can make disciples. So one of my favorite authors on disciple-making says, here are some of the ways we need to think outside the box. Here are some of the ways we have to change our thinking from running programs to building people, from running events to training people, from utilizing people who are volunteers to growing people, to filling gaps to equipping new workers, to focusing on church policies to forging spiritual partnerships. I mean, all these things affect our ability to think outside the box and let the Word of God wreck our stereotypes and start building into us a Great Commission mindset. See, traditionally, church members, and I don't think I'm referring to Berean here, but traditionally, church members have thought, okay, there's a certain number of jobs, ushers, Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers, treasurers, trustees, board members, nursery workers, money counters, hospital visitors, And if someone's occupying all those jobs, then I'll just, there's not much for me to do. There's nothing left to do. No, according to our passage this morning, you're a ligament, a tendon, a joint, and Christ wants to work through you for the corporate growth of the body unto the knowledge of Jesus. He wants to work through you. I was delighted to hear the plan to start these growth groups in January. And I'm convinced the Lord is going to bless that mightily because I heard from your church leaders that it's not just bringing people into regional growth groups based upon their geographic location, but these growth groups will involve prayer and probing questions and, and where are blockage in, blockages in your sanctification that need to be addressed by the Word of God and what are, what's holding you back in certain areas of your growth and ministry. So it's a very much a life-on-life soul care that you're aiming at for these growth groups. I was so encouraged to hear that. Because just getting someone in a home fellowship or a growth group, that may assist the Great Commission in some ways, but unless it's absolutely intentional to build a disciple maker, it's really not going to participate as much as you think to fulfilling the Great Commission.
All the jobs are never taken because every single member is a joint, a ligament, a tendon that Christ is working through that the body might produce what it needs and grow towards maturity. So what are the basics of body life that are designed to fill the Great Commission? Well, each member is working with a growth that comes from God, is what it says in Colossians 2.19. Christ is animating these members. He's the head, and it's producing a growth that is from God. There's just countless contexts for ministry. The Lord often will work in someone's heart, and what your disciple shares with you may surprise you. A country western singer came over to our house for help in how to start a nonprofit corporation. And this person was a recording artist from Nashville, but a strong Christian. And this person said, here's some of my music and so on, but I can't shake this vision I have. I weep when I think about it. How can we get the gospel to street people? And so I thought, well, that's a pretty big calling. This person wound up training volunteers and setting up tables with water and food and gospel tracts in four major U.S. cities. And street people are coming to saving faith through this ministry. This person left behind their country western singing calling. And that passion, which was throbbing in their heart, found a way to be expressed. And so this whole idea of, of how you'll minister to someone else is not divorced from your uniqueness. It's not divorced from who God wired you to be. It's not divorced from a passion that's burning in your heart. I know people involved in crisis pregnancy centers, and, and many of them have a mercy gift. But it started out with a vision I really see a tremendous need here. And rather than just saying, what organizations out there can I just give to, how can I be a worldview changer? How can I be a change maker and actually do something? And so fulfilling your part in the body is more than just something confined to the church campus or to a Bible study. It's also how you're going to affect the community and some of the needs out there. So scripture says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So what ensues, what takes place when the word of God is dwelling in your hearts, the word of Christ is there, the gospel's dwelling there, and you're overflowing with thanksgiving? You know what that's going to produce? Just a radical growing awareness of opportunities to minister to others. In fact, compared to what it was when the Word of God was not dwelling in you richly, suddenly the radar is on and the radar screen is there and you start seeing the needs in the body you want to touch and minister to. This is a byproduct of the Word of God richly dwelling in you. The Word of Christ richly dwelling in you will make you aware of the needs of the body. You'll start seeing the needs of the body through your gift. Now, the guys I disciple, I often say, you know, one of the best ways to discover your spiritual gift may not necessarily be by taking a test or some sort of diagnostic exam. The best way to discover your gift is to ask yourself this question. What needs of the body do I see? Is it a need for mercy, care, compassion? A need for instruction? 
a need for order, administration? Chances are you're seeing the needs of the body through the gift God has given you. Sometimes it even comes out as a complaint. We have to be careful. How come nobody's ministering to these widows? Brother, you've got a compassion gift, a mercy gift. God's appointing you to start a widow ministry. You're so troubled by this. That's what's going on. So as we are controlled by this word of Christ richly dwelling within you, we will find it natural to speak in these tones, teaching, admonishing, encouraging. We'll find it natural to speak in those tones. And those indeed are three or four tones. All of us need encouragement on a regular basis. Encouragement is never out of season. But we also need exhortation, a reminder. If one of you said to another in the reception area of our church this morning, can I share with you how much I'm thinking about the soon return of Christ and what that's doing for my walk? And then you ask the other person, is that something that animates you? Thinking about the return of Christ and what it does for your walk. You are admonishing. You are exhorting. You are encouraging. But admonishing is a little different than the other two. Admonishing has the idea of confronting in love, of charging someone to obey a certain responsibility, of actually reproving at times. Now, I disciple a number of men, and one of them shared this with me. He said, uh, years ago, I was in a period of backsliding, and a brother put his arm around me and said this, my friend... You're playing at the edge of hell. You're playing at the edge of hell. This man was so disturbed by that, it was like a sniper bullet buried in his chest. He could not get rid of that. It haunted him. You're playing at the edge of hell. Well, I just thought I'm under grace. I've accepted Jesus. I, you know, the Lord will forgive. No, this sniper bullet stuck in him like a slug that hadn't been taken out. And the Lord worked through that. This man did repent. But he would not have repented as quickly if he hadn't been admonished by a loving brother. So we need to learn to speak in these three tones. Encouragement as a habit of life. Exhorting to obey what we already know. And sometimes reproving. Now which one is easiest of the three? Encouraging. Everybody in this room can encourage. Even without a close relationship you can encourage. But to exhort requires a little closer relationship. And to admonish requires a little bit more courage and perhaps even a closer relationship. But we need to learn to speak in these three tones. And so the means that God is going to use to bring each Christian to maturity is by speaking or re-speaking the Word of God into one another's lives, encouraging one another to stick with Christ. Now, Pastor Eric gave some wonderful summaries of what was going on in our retreat this weekend. And he shared a passage from Hebrews 3, that it's normal for the body of Christ to be encouraging and exhorting one another as you see that day drawing near. That's partly from Hebrews 10. But lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's going to protect one another from the deceitfulness of sin? How will I watch your back from the deceitfulness of sin? By committing myself to regularly encourage you in the word and encourage you to obedience. Because what's the great commission? Training them, equipping them, 
instructing them to observe, that is, obey all that I have commanded. Matthew 28, 20. And so the Great Commission is about learning to obey. See, it does take some humility to be a discipled person. You've got to be able to say, I welcome having my obedience monitored. This is not somebody with a clipboard saying you failed this week. No, having your obedience monitored means you're ready to have feedback from another brother or sister. You see, it goes both ways because when you're willing to be a disciple or a disciplee, if you're a discipler, you're actually saying, not only am I communicating God's truth to you, I'm also saying there are elements in my life you can be imitating. I'm seeking to the best of my ability through God's Spirit to model the Christian life. And so discipleship is not just imparting data. It's also modeling and being an example to your disciple. Boy, that's the rub, isn't it? (laughs) This is why a lot of us will bench ourselves and pronounce ourselves ineligible to be a discipler because we say, I'm not sure I want someone to imitate me. But if you're going to obey the Great Commission and grow to that place of being a disciple maker, you're going to have to think that way. Wow, we're breaking another stereotype here. To disciple someone is actually to be able to say, disciple, there are things in my life that you can imitate. I'm going to seek to model the obedience. I'm going to try to set an example for you. So some of the things in our discipleship relationship will be received by osmosis. More of it is caught than taught as you see how I order my life. Well, let's summarize this in terms of the fact that everybody in this room might be in a slightly different place on the growth curve. So what's something that all of us can do, even today, to obey this? Seeking to view our fellowship as an opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission. Well, one of these comes in a very surprising terminology. It's in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. I marvel at how the Holy Spirit chose this designation for spiritual giftedness. But it's so powerful. I'll start in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What an interesting way to describe your spiritual gift. It is the manifestation of the Spirit of Christ. When you exercise your gift to bless your brothers and sisters, that's the Holy Spirit manifesting His presence in the body of Berean Church. How do we know the Spirit's here? Of course, it's because the truth is taught faithfully. But we also know the Spirit's here because the manifestation of the Spirit is you exercising your gift. That's fascinating. Boy, God is at work. He energizes this body life unto disciple-making. But there's another passage that's equally powerful on how you view how God's going to use you to bless others. I mean, what is your gift? It's simply the unique way you're going to be a special blessing to others in the body. And that's found in 1 Peter chapter 4. So that first one was, the Spirit is in you, and He's going to manifest His presence when you are seeking to be a blessing to others in the body. But take a look at this in 1 Peter chapter 4. 
We're told in that passage that your gift is kind of on loan. <laughs> Look at verse 10 of 1 Peter 4. As each one has received a special gift, that's every single believer, employ it, put it to work, use it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, what is a steward? That's someone who's carefully, responsibly managing something that doesn't truly belong to him or her. He's successfully managing something which is on loan, a sacred trust. God has entrusted you with a gift by which you will bless your brothers and sisters. It's kind of on loan. You're going to have to give a report of how you used it. But you're a steward of the gospel. One of the ways you steward the word of grace, the gospel, the grace of God, is by putting your spiritual gift to work. That's a responsibility. This is how we're thinking with this new mindset that through our fellowship, we're going to fulfill the Great Commission. Verse 11, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Have you ever thought that using your spiritual gift is one of the ways you adore Jesus and are loyal to him? I think this text certainly suggests that. I think when I instruct young men in how to make disciples and how to move further in their, in their progress, they'll often tell me, well, wow, you're explaining a lot of good Bible doctrine on this, but can you give me some nuts and bolts how-to? How do I even get out of the starting gate? How do I even begin to take steps in this area? Well, one of the ways is to begin to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds in a premeditated way plan that your friendships can be moved in the direction of spiritual partnerships for growth. So there are certain kinds of questions we can ask, uh, really simple ones. Um, I have had entire discipleship relationships start just by asking some of these questions. Man, can I ask what the Lord's doing in your life? Are there any hot spots in your spiritual warfare that you need someone to come alongside and pray with you on? Are there any ministry opportunities you'd love to do but are hesitant about? And there's on and on. There's just a countless number of these questions. When I've asked these, I'm not kidding, discipleship relationships have started spontaneously just by asking caring questions like this. I also use a whole series of questions in evangelism. I don't just find an unbeliever and say, listen, here's the four points of the gospel. I will often start with a question like this. Hey, what do you think's gone wrong with the world? And they love to have a chance to talk. But then I'll come back with this. Well, the fact that you think something's wrong with the world means that somewhere you must think there's a standard for what a right world would look like. Can you tell me what that standard is of what a right world would look like? Well, suddenly it's crickets. <laughs> because that right world is obedience to the Word of God. It's obedience to the law of God. It's the love enjoined in the Ten Commandments. And so coming up with these kinds of caring questions where you're really interested in the person is a wonderful, is a wonderful catalyst to discipleship conversations. 
you know, the Apostle Paul doesn't leave us with merely pragmatics. Not that this is pragmatism, but he doesn't leave us with merely pragmatics. He shows us that the, the church obeying the pattern of the Great Commission has a goal above and beyond which you could possibly even contain in, in your brain. And this goal of the church perfecting itself and, and giving itself what it needs through Christ animating each part has one great goal. It's described in Ephesians 3, 10, and 11. Take a look there. We'll close with this passage, Ephesians 3, 10, and 11. Ephesians 3.10, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our almighty triune God has a teaching device and the students in his class are the myriads and myriads of holy angels. These are the principalities mentioned here. And one of the number one ways God is revealing His perfections, His glory, His majesty, His infinite wisdom, is the fact that He could take you and me from defiled rebels and make them Christ followers and ultimately cause them to gain the glory of Christ. Angels are learning about God through the church being made like Jesus. Isn't that marvelous? But in order for the church to do this effectively, we've got to adopt Christ's pattern as our own. We can't just retreat into traditional forms and religious forms. We've got to proactively adopt this pattern for the church as spelled out in Colossians 2 and Ephesians 4. The other day I was studying something a little oblique. I was actually studying how many times in the book of Acts the gospels associated with the kingdom. And just so everybody knows, I'm premillennial. But in looking at how the gospels associated with the kingdom, why does it still say the gospel of the kingdom in Acts 8:12? When Philip is preaching the gospel. Why does it still say in Acts 28, 23, and 31, when Paul is about to be beheaded, that in Rome he's preaching the good news of the gospel of the kingdom? The church is not the kingdom. The church is an outpost of the kingdom. In fact, as the world sees this little body loving on itself and making sacrifices for the news of the word of God to go forward, the church gets a little glimpse of what the kingdom is going to be. And part of the good news of the kingdom is this. The Savior who was broken and who died in the place of sinners is the king. The Savior who was broken and bled in the place of sinners cleared the way for the glory of God to be made manifest to the elect. And the number one way the glory of God is going to be communicated to the glorified church through all eternity is through Jesus and His glory. And so right now, every true believer is part of that wonderful group of individuals that will be gathered around the throne of Christ to behold His glory, have the glory of God communicated to them uninterrupted, unbroken for all eternity. And therefore, the message of the king crucified to make friends of his enemies, the message of the king of the kingdom that his glory is going to fill the cosmos, the message that the king has a kingdom that is coming, means that disciple-making is the greatest 
possible opportunity in all of life. If you are moved by this glory, if you're moved by the glory of Christ, you'll begin to see that disciple-making is the greatest opportunity imaginable, and you will gladly make sacrifices for it. See, we're assaulted with advertising daily, if not hourly, and advertising basically says this, the more of your preferences you receive, the happier you will be. But Jesus has a different formula. At the center of our faith is a bloody cross and a resurrected Savior. And our Christ is saying this, joy will come from the fact that when your life and my life intersect at points of self-sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, your joy will overflow. 